Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. It's on page 687, Isaiah chapter 13. As we continue our uh, sermon series in the book of Isaiah, if you're here with us for the first time this Sunday, we want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. We're in the middle of a sermon series in the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah. And today we come to chapter 13. We're going to be studying verses 9 to 13 today, so let me just read those. Isaiah 13, 9 to 13 says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. Let's pray. God, as we come to Your Word this morning, we uh, praise You and thank You for it. We thank You that You are a God who speaks, that You reveal Yourself to us. Lord, I pray now as we study Your Word, as we uh, try to understand Your ways among the nations, how You're governing and guiding this world, I pray, Lord, that You'd open up our hearts so that we might see the glory of Jesus, that we might see that He's not only the Savior, but He's also the King, that He does rule over this world, that this whole universe is His, including our nation and our own lives and our families and our neighborhoods. So, Lord, we pray, help us to to see His glory and to desire to follow Him. Just as we've been singing about in all these songs, singing about uh, knowing You, Christ, as the greatest thing and highest praises to You. Lord, we pray that that those words that we've just sung would be true in our hearts. They'd be true in our lives. They'd be true in our behavior, in our families, in our church. So, God, uh, work among us. We're eager to see what You're going to say to us this morning through Your Word. We're eager to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us as the Spirit speaks through the Word. So, Lord, we open up our hearts to You and look forward to You teaching us and being with us and us being with You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've been following uh, recent world events this week in Sudan. Uh, Sudan is a very uh, troubled nation in northeastern uh, Africa. It's been troubled for a long time. Uh, It's a divided nation. I don't know what you know of Sudan, but in the north is a predominantly Arab population who are uh, Islamic, and in the south is predominantly African, and it's a Christian and animistic uh, sort of traditional African folk religion, and it really is kind of this line between north and south, Uh, and uh, in 1983, the Islamic government in the north declared all of Sudan to be an Islamic republic, which uh, ignited a civil war, which has been going on for uh, a long time now since 1983, and basically the the northern uh, Islamic forces have been trying to conquer and force the the south to convert to Islam. It's been a horrible uh, couple decades in Sudan, uh, a great humanitarian crisis, uh, thousands and thousands murdered and villages burned and people raped, and it's it's a horrible genocide really is what it's been. Uh, In fact, uh, one of the great atrocities that's taking place in Sudan, believe it or not, is slavery. There are an estimated 60 to 200,000 slaves in Sudan. Just like, you know, like we used to have the horrible thing of slavery in our country. Same thing over there. As, as the north has come down 
attacked a village, killed the men, enslaved the women, bring them back up to the north and force them to convert to uh, Islam. So it's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, the newest uh, twist in, in Sudan, is, as you've heard in the news probably, is in western Sudan in the Darfur area. And, and it's interesting because that is a, a Muslim area, but the Muslim forces in the north are attacking and supporting the attacks on the Muslims in the west because the Muslims in the west aren't Arab. They're a different ethnicity. So the, the battle goes on. Some of you probably heard on the news Colin Powell's been uh, this week really sounding the alarm bell, trying to raise global awareness for this uh, humanitarian crisis. Millions now being displaced, the refugee crisis over there. You know, you read about all this on the news and it's like, ah, you know, what is wrong? Who is going to do something about this? You know, that, that's the kind of things I think. Is, is someone going to bring this to an end? How do you fix problems like this? And, and how, who's going to hold the, this government, this uh, horrible government, accountable for their actions? You know, where's the court of justice that's going to do that? Is it going to be America? Well, you know, I'm glad Colin Powell's raising the alarm, but, you know, we have troops all over the world. Are we going to send troops over to Sudan now? I mean, how, how much can our troops do? How much uh, stability can they provide for the world? We only have so many troops, so many resources. Uh, maybe it's the UN's job. Of course, uh, there's a slight glitch there. Uh, I don't know if you know what country is on the UN's human rights board. Sudan. <laughs> can you believe it? It's like, what? You're on the human rights board. Uh, it, so, you know, you look at situations like this and you just you go, well, what do you just give up and go on with our lives, I guess? I don't know. I'm busy. You're busy. You know, how is this going to be accounted for? And uh, the great truth that we put our hope in and put our comfort in, and it's the truth that we're going to study in today's text, is that God judges the nations. The nations answer to God. All the countries of the earth and all the kings of the earth are accountable to God. And the things that nations do are known by God and seen by God. Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, He's also the judge of the world when He comes back. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And, and that is His authority that He gives us to go out and preach the gospel. But it's also His authority to rule over the nations. And so the great truth that we're studying today in Isaiah chapter 13 is that God judges the nations. He is the Lord of the nations. Uh, in fact, as we come to chapter 13 in Isaiah, we're coming to a new literary section within the book of Isaiah. And I'd like you to do something. If you could take out your uh, sermon notes for a minute. And let me just review quickly where we've been in the book of Isaiah thus far. If you look on the front top, you'll see uh, a brief outline of the major literary units in Isaiah that we've studied. The first is chapters 1 through 6. That's really an introduction to the book. And it climaxes with Isaiah's call from God to be a prophet. That's kind of the first section. It, sets us in, it orients us to the whole book. And then we just finished chapters 7 through 12. If you were here last Sunday, we studied the joy of our salvation. That was that section. And those, those oracles all kind of uh, hang around the Syro-Ephraimite crisis. Now, if you haven't been here and you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Uh, we can fill you in sometime later. But we've been studying that the last couple months. Well, today we come to a new section, which is chapters 13 to 23, which is oracles, or that means prophecies, against the nations. And here Isaiah speaks prophecies of judgment against all of the nations that were around Israel at that time. It's sort of like the known world to Israel at that time. He speaks against the nations. And if you look underneath that, you'll see a, a list of the nations. You can see it. There's Babylon, Assyria, 
chapter 14, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, uh, Cush, Egypt, Egypt and Cush. That all may actually kind of be one, really. It's, I spread them out there, though. Uh, Babylon, Edom, Arab, Jerusalem, and finally Tyre, which was a city in Phoenicia. Now, if you don't know where those places are, you can look on page 2. Here's a map of the ancient world. And what I did was, you know, uh, take these numbers on page 1 and just put them on the map on page 2. So, if, you know, if you're a little fuzzy on uh, Edom, which most of us are, you can look on page 2 and you can see number 10 there uh, in the northwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula. So anyway, those are the nations that are uh, prophesied against in this section of oracles. Now, the bad news is I'm not going to preach on every single oracle. I know that's disappointing. I know you'd like to go through every one of these nations and hear the judgment against them uh, for the next 13 weeks. So I'm actually just going to do one. I'm just going to do... So here we're kind of fast-forwarding through Isaiah a little bit. Because, you know, when you get the gist of one, you get the gist of all of them. That God is holding the nations accountable for their actions and for what they do. And the reason I picked the first one in chapter 13 is because even though it's against Babylon, it's really a representative one for all of the nations of the world. It's kind of an introduction to the whole section. In fact, if you notice on your uh, handout, you'll see that Babylon is number one, but Babylon's also number nine. Now, why does Babylon appear twice in this oracle against the nations? Is it because Babylon was just extra bad and it gets you know, two judgment oracles against it? Well, I don't think so. I think the reason we see Babylon twice is because... Uh, uh, the, the first oracle against Babylon is really more general. It's really kind of like Babylon is a symbol for all the nations, and it sets up the whole literary unit. And then in the, later on in the book, we get the actual one against Babylon. So I think that's what's taking place. And I think that's uh, also seen by the fact that the language in chapter 13 is so general and global. It's not specific. It's very universal in nature. Look at chapter 13, verse 9, which is our text. And, and notice some of the, uh, the global language. Verse 10, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Uh, verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil. Verse 12, I will make man scarcer than pure gold. Not just the Babylonians, humanity. Uh, verse 13, I will make the earth, the heavens tremble. And the earth will shake from its place. So you have all this very broad, general, global language, which makes me think that this first prophecy against Babylon is really an introduction to all the prophecies against the nations. So we come to a new section in Isaiah, and the main message is God judges the nations. The nations are accountable to God. The countries and kings and dictators and uh, presidents and parliamentarians of this world answer to God and must stand before him for their deeds. So, with that general idea in mind, let's sort of dive into this prophecy. And let's look at verse 9. It says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The day of the Lord is coming. God has a day. And it isn't sponsored by Hallmark, okay? <laughs> this is a bad day. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase, the day of the Lord. Uh, you, you should be. It should be part of your biblical vocabulary. Um, it, it's a common phrase, the day of the Lord. It appears in the Old Testament, a lot of places in the New Testament. Let, let me just tell you what the day of the Lord is, and you can kind of put this away in your filing cabinet. Uh, the day of the Lord is, is any period where God intervenes in a nation or intervenes in the world to bring judgment 
and to rescue his people. That's what the day of the Lord is. It's kind of a period at the end of a sentence. You know, the world goes on, yada, 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 saying what it does, doing what it does, and then God says, okay, that's enough. And God says, that's it. And he brings judgment. It's, it's kind of a, a, a final note when God intervenes. So it could be a literal day or it could be a period of time. Uh, the, the nations do what they want. They disobey God's laws. They reject God. They persecute his people. And they go on like this and God puts up with it. God puts up with it. And finally he says, that's it. Boom. Day of the Lord. So it's any time that, that there's an intervention by God to bring judgment and to rescue his people. Uh, That's the day of the Lord. So as you can see, there are a lot of days of the Lord throughout human history. There's a lot of places in human history where God intervenes and does things. There's also going to be a final sort of capital D day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming. That's kind of the ultimate climax, final day of the Lord that all these little day of the Lords foreshadow and point to. So we're looking forward to this final day of the Lord when Christ returns. And it's very interesting, in fact, that uh, you see chapter 13, verse 10 where it says the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not show their light, the rising sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Jesus quotes that verse when he talks about what his second coming is. So I think this verse not only talks about God's judgment against nations, but it's the final ultimate judgment against all the nations uh, of the world. So this is the day of the Lord. And as you can see, it's a bad day. It's not good. Uh, Verse 9, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. So it's the day when God judges sin in the world. It's the day when God says, enough, I've had it. And, and he calls humanity to account for all of its actions and all of its deeds. It's the day when God makes us all stand before the judgment seat in one way or another. It's, it's the judgment day. And to show us how awful this day is, Isaiah uses this interesting language. And I guess the best way I can describe it is it's decreation language. You heard of creation, right? This is decreation. This is when God unmakes everything He's made. That's a, sort of a way of uh, visualizing judgment. Judgment is when God makes the world fall apart. In creation, He put the world together. In judgment, He makes it fall apart. And so, look, isn't this interesting to, to describe this day of judgment? Verse 10: The stars, uh, the stars don't shine. The moon is darkened. The sun is darkened. So in creation, God puts the heavenly bodies in place. In judgment, God turns off the switch. Uh, Or look at verse uh, 12. He says, I will make man scarcer than pure gold. So in creation, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the whole earth. Go ahead, humanity. Just spread out all over. In decreation, God goes, no, opposite. You're going to be scarcer than pure gold. In other words, it's another way of saying I'm going to wipe you out. Uh, Verse 13. Uh, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place. So in creation, God fixes the heavens and the earth and puts them in their place. In judgment and decreation, they you know, fall apart. So it's, it's the decreation of the world. And why does God do it? Why is God so mad? What's this judgment day all about? Well, verse 11, here's the reason. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. It's because the world has rejected God who made it. It's because creation has abandoned its creator. Because the nations of the world, rather than bowing before God, have fancied themselves little gods. You know, we can do what we want. We don't care what the rules are. We we don't care what morality says. We're going to live how we want to live. And this is what we're going to decide. We're sovereign nations. 
well, you know, relatively speaking, you're sovereign nations. No, no, we're absolutely sovereign. No, no, relatively sovereign. God is the true sovereign. And because humanity has forgotten that, there's this day of judgment. Uh, notice, too, in verse 11, the emphasis upon pride. Do you see that? I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. See, that's at the heart of sin. Sin is, you know, God, I can do what I want to do. I can say what I want to say. I can live how I want to live. And, and it's that arrogance against God that really is the heart of uh, sin. In fact, you see this final word in verse 11 where it says, I will humble the pride of the ruthless. You know, there's another way you can translate that word which I actually like better. It's the English word insolent. I will humble the pride of the insolent. Insolent, that's a good word, isn't it? We don't use that word enough. You know, I mean, besides what well, my kids are all the time. You insolent little urchin! You know, but, I mean, really. You know, I mean, like, really, what's the last time you said the word insolence? You know, it sounds like kind of a Charles Dickens sort of word. Uh, it, it, you know, insolent, is, but it's a good word, man. Let's think about this word, insolent. It, it's, it's not just pride, is it? Like, there's pride and then there's insolence. And they kind of overlap, but there's a little bit different. Insolence has this idea of, uh, I guess, brashness. You know, sort of like, in your face, I don't care. You know, pride will park in the no parking zone because the rules don't apply to pride. But insolence will park in the no parking zone and then get out a can of spray paint and spray the no parking sign. You know, that's insolence. It's like, I don't care what the rules are. That's the line? Well, hmm, you know. Oh, that's the rule? Fine, I'm going to break it. And I don't care who knows it. You know, insolence has this, uh, this reckless arrogance uh, to it. It, it, it flaunts the laws of God. It, it says, oh, that's what God says? Well, I don't care. That's traditional morality? Well, forget about it. It's so that God's laws and God's ways are, are overthrown with kind of a, a brashness and an arrogance that's, whew, man, you know, tone it down a little bit. That's insolence. And it's because of the insolence, because when sin becomes so brash and brazen that finally God says, okay, boop, day of the Lord, that's it. And God intervenes. Um, maybe I could pull this all together for you. Uh, I'm thinking of two examples of the day of the Lord, the two classic examples from the Old Testament. And I'll give you a hint. They're both in the book of Genesis. Can you think of the two classic days of the Lord in the book of Genesis? Go ahead and shout it out real loud. I'll just laugh if you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Noah, the flood. What's the other one? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, those are the two classics. You think about it. Noah and the flood. God makes the world... The world turns away from him and, and it goes on. It gets worse and worse and worse. And what does it say? Finally, God was grieved that he had made humanity. And so he said, I'm going to destroy it. And so he finally says to Noah, you know, build this boat. And God saves his few and he, he destroys the world in, in judgment. And that flood, that wiping out of humanity, is a decreation, right? Taking the ordered world and just kind of making it a watery chaos again. And God brings judgment. He's like, I put up with it, I put up with it, I put up with it, that's it. Rain, it's over. And you have this day of the Lord that, that happens. Sodom and Gomorrah, same thing. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were just so brazen and so brash in their wickedness. And God had put up with it, put up with it, put up with it. Finally, He sends two angels on a fact-finding mission. They go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and they're like, wow, you know, Lot, get your family, we're going. And so Lot gets, I think he comes out with just two daughters. So there's three people who escape Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when they leave, God decreates Sodom and Gomorrah, just the whole area. And so there are these little pictures of what the day of the Lord is like. And it's interesting because when, when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord later and in the New Testament, it will often draw upon those images from the Old Testament. God's put them in places 
a prefigurement of what the day of the Lord will look like. And God still judges nations. I think, uh, wasn't it Abraham Nation? Uh, Abraham Nation. Abraham Lincoln, who said, uh, I, I believe he said that, that the Civil War, he believed, was God's judgment on America for the institution of slavery. You know, he could be right. God still judges nations. Or I think about the, uh, the, you know, the Third Reich supposedly going to last a thousand years and Hitler almost taking on this divine status. The, the brazen, insolent atrocities that were committed against uh, the Jewish people and many of the peoples of uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, God brought that to an end. And, you know, you look in hindsight and, you know, was that the hand and judgment of God? I mean, it's, you know, I'm not a prophet. I can't say like Isaiah did. But, I, you know, I, I go out on a limb and say, yeah, I think God said enough. And, and he ended that government before it reached its thousand-year limit, like it said it was going to be. Uh, God still judges nations. All the nations of the earth are accountable to God. All the peoples of the earth are accountable to God. And that includes America. Our nation is an incredible nation. I love our country. I think it's one of the greatest countries that's ever existed. The freedoms we have, the, the resources, the, the blessings that God has poured out on us. God has shed His grace on the America. But, but, you know, we have to remember, we're not in some special class of countries. We, too, stand before God. We must answer for uh, how we are as a nation. The, the, uh, this uh, great day, this Independence Day, we celebrate our freedom as Americans. And freedom... I think it's probably the, the core of what it means to be an American is to love freedom and to love independence and to celebrate that freedom. And, and that's why people from all over the world can become Americans because it's about anyone who loves that freedom that we have. But, but what we have to remember on this day is that the freedom we have, paradoxically, is only secure when we are surrendered to God and His ways. And so it's kind of a paradox that, that if we want to enjoy freedom and celebrate freedom... We have to bind ourselves and chain ourselves with God's laws, God's morality, and God's ways. And when those two are separated, disaster comes. Uh, to protect our freedom, we must remember that freedom is always accountable to God. And what we do with our freedom, what we do with our independence as Americans, will be judged by God at some point. Now, our founding fathers understood this. The Founding Fathers were very clear about this. They were very clear. You read their writings, you read their material. They understood that the freedom they were defining was in a context of divine accountability. That, that the freedom we have is from God and we have to answer to God for it. You I mean, you read their writings, it's soaked with this understanding. Or to put it a different way, if I could just put it bluntly, the Founding Fathers were overwhelmingly Christians. I know, we don't hear that today because we're rewriting the textbooks in schools and they don't talk about that. But it's the truth. I mean, you can go back and read the primary source documents. They weren't uh, secularists. They were not deists. There's a few deists, you know, like Ben Franklin. And, you know, he was a deist. But even, you read Ben Franklin, he sounds more Christian than a lot of Christians. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what kind of deism he was, but it was, it was pretty Christian-sounding deism. But, you know, they weren't deists. They were Christians. And they had a Christian framework so that the, the freedom they were talking about and that they were writing in their documents was a freedom that was understood to be operating with an accountability to God. It was, if you could call it, a theistic freedom. They believed there was a God who had given these rights and we must answer to Him for those rights. In fact, uh, you know, let me just give you an example. Of the, the 55 signers of the Constitution, 
Did you know that of those 55, all but three were Orthodox members of some Christian church? There were 29 Anglicans, 16 to 18 Calvinists, two Methodists, two Lutherans, two Roman Catholics, one lapsed Quaker, who's also a sometimes Anglican, and one open deist, Dr. Franklin, who attended every kind of Christian worship, called for public prayer, and contributed to all denominations. There's no Baptist in that list. You know, that's... Well, I suppose it's a good document anyway. Um, in fact, you know what you ought to do? Is, uh, I'd recommend this book to you. It's by a guy named Tim LaHaye, Faith of Our Founding Fathers. If, if you want to read all the stuff that they snipped out of your uh, textbook when you are in high school, uh, this is the book. It's just full of primary source documents of the faith of our fathers. And it reminds us, which we're not being told today, that the founders of this nation were Christians, specifically and overwhelmingly Christian. So why do I bring that up? Well, the, the point is that they conceived of freedom as freedom within a context of accountability to God. It was not absolute, do what you want freedom. It was freedom under God. That's how they understood it. In fact, uh, look in your sermon notes on page 3. Here's a prayer. This is just one for instance. We could spend months going over historical documents showing the faith of the founding fathers. I mean, we could... We could put away Isaiah. I wouldn't ever do it. We could put away Isaiah and just spend week after week reading documents of the founding fathers showing their faith, and you'd be blown away by it, and I would too. Uh, Here's just one little one. This is a prayer. You see there, Freedom Guided by Faith. This is a prayer from President George Washington. It was on his circular letter that he sent out at the end of his presidency to the governors of the 13 colonies. A little prayer he tacked on the end. And uh, what I want you to notice, especially at the end, is the connection he sees between the good of our nation and faith in God. He says, Almighty God, we make our earnest prayer that Thou wilt keep the United States in Thy holy protection and Thou wilt incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government and entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another and for their fellow citizens in the United States at large. And finally, that Thou wilt most graciously be pleased to dispose us all, and here he quotes, uh, this is Micah, right? To do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves. There's the humility. With that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, who is Jesus. <laughs> That's just another way of saying Jesus Christ. And without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to have a happy nation. So basically what George Washington says is, unless we really imitate Jesus, our nation's not going to be happy. What would the ACLU say today to a president writing those kinds of things? And he's writing this to all these governors, you know, sort of orders to the governors. Look, guys, we've got to really follow Jesus. Because if we don't follow Jesus, then this whole thing is going to fall apart. My point is, again, that they understood the freedom as freedom for. It was freedom for religion. It was freedom for serving others. It was freedom for sacrificing myself for my neighbor. It was freedom for serving a nation. And we still have freedom today, but today it's been redefined. It's not so much freedom for, it's freedom from. It's freedom from religion. It's freedom from morality. It's freedom from traditions. Uh, When people talk about freedom today, it's like, man, get off my back. I want to live my life. I want to do what I say. I don't want anyone imposing their views or their morality on me. It's, It's a freedom from these things, which is... You know, totally opposite of what freedom was conceived of in the first place. As in, it's not accountable to God anymore. It's detached from God. 
So, so freedom still is here, but now it's seen as an absolute freedom. It's not freedom relative to divine uh, authority. It's just freedom in and of itself. And it's pure, unadulterated, let me do what I want to do kind of freedom. Or if I could put it differently, it's insolent freedom. It's insolent freedom. It's arrogance. It says, oh, that's the, that's the line? That's your, well, you can't tell me to do that because I'm free. You know, or I'm going to step over here. And, and, and we see it in our nation. I was reading this week about uh, the Supreme Court jo- voted five to four, uh, t- uh, not so much in favor of uh, this. Uh, have you heard of the Online Child Protection Act? It's, it's an act that's trying to protect children from Internet pornography, basically. And, in a, and they voted to send it back to this lower court and say, no, no, you guys got to rule on this. And in, in, in that, they put a big lengthy statement about the dangers of blocking Internet pornography because it might violate free speech. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry, Internet pornography is not free speech. Okay? It's not art. You know, any of you who are artists, I mean, it's an insult to you to call that art. <laughs> it's not. And, and the Founding Fathers had no problem. Uh, calling it what it was. They didn't undersee that as part of free speech. There's court cases from the 1800s that, where there was pornography, and they said, no, that's not free speech. But, you know, something's changed uh, today, and, and so that, you know, pornography is, is more mainstream. Some of you have wrestled with pornography. Some of you wrestle with it. You know that it's poison. It gets in your soul, and it just eats away, and it's like, you've got to get rid of it. It's so awful. But, but because we're protecting that as a nation under freedom... Everything's free, and, and so we can do whatever we want without accountability to God. But I just want to say God knows these things are going on. He holds nations accountable, even if courts and magistrates don't. God still does. Uh, or another example of uh, the insolent disregard for God's laws, of course, here in Massachusetts. <laughs> you know, the obvious one, uh, gay marriage in our, our state. Uh, this oxymoron gay marriage, to, to think that, that we can redefine marriage. I mean, every, every human civilization, Christian or not, throughout all of human history, as far as we know, has always protected marriages between man and woman. Sometimes it's been polygamous, but it's still been man with women, you know, but it's still male and female. Even in cultures that, that condone homosexual behavior, they still said, yeah, but marriage is man and woman. And so after millennia of human experience, we sort of have the insolence and the audacity to redefine marriage. I mean, can, can people just do that without God at some point saying, Enough! Can we just do that? Uh, and I think, I think uh, gay marriage is a big thing, but I think it's small potatoes compared to probably the most blatant example of insolence in, in our culture, which is um, the fact that in the last, I guess, 30 years, 25 years, uh, 40, over 40 million Americans have died through abortion. 40 million. I mean, over 40 million. I, I don't know how many people died in Sudan, but it ain't 40 million. And, and we've legalized this. And it's, of course, it, it's murder. It just breaks God's commandments. It's bad for women. I, I mean, that's another reason I'm against abortion. It's so bad for women. Because I think it forces women toward abortion. You know, the, the, the whole thing is, well, it's a choice. You can keep the baby or not. I don't think so. Because I think when you actually have the unwed pregnant, unplanned pregnancy, what happens is your family's like, well, get an abortion. And, and the, the father's like, well, just get an abortion. And instead of your family supporting you, now women are being pushed by all these people in their family. Like, well, don't keep it, you know. If you want to keep it, I guess you can, but that's sort of like a weird hobby or something. You know, forget that. You know, keep, you know get rid of it. And so instead of freeing women, it's really, I think, enslaved women. And it's pushed women to make this. And when women go through that, you know, it's the guilt and the shame of it. And it's just bad. It's bad for children. It's bad for women. But, but it goes on in our nation. It's legalized. And people go around with signs celebrating it. That's insolence. And at some point, God says, enough of that.
Uh, we cannot flaunt God's laws forever. And if our country, which is an awesome country, I love this country, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world, but if we keep stepping away from God and stepping against His laws and breaking them, there comes a point when God says, all right, you've had your day, it's my day. And that's a bad day. So if you're feeling patriotic this morning, if you're feeling proud to be an American like I am, I, let me suggest two things you can do today in addition to the fireworks, the parade, and the burgers and all that stuff that I'm going to do and we're going to love it. But uh, in addition to all that, can I just suggest two things we ought to do for our nation? The first is that we ought to repent of our sins individually. That, uh, as it says, it starts with me. Change in America starts with me. It starts with us. Let us be willing to confess our sins to God and whatever they are. Let's humble ourselves before Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I will follow you. Let's follow George Washington's advice. <laughs> and let's follow Jesus. And let us do what Christ says. And, and if there's some insolent, flagrant sin in my life or some area where I'm just living totally contrary to God's laws, let me humble myself and come back to Christ. And then the second thing I think we should do is pray for our nation today at uh, some time. Find some time today. Maybe before you go to bed, just pray five minutes for our country. Uh, and specifically, I think we should pray for a revival. Uh, revival is, is when God just takes a big bucket of the Holy Spirit just pours it out on a people. It's a big nor'easter of Holy Spirit that comes and blankets an area and people are just overwhelmed by God's power. God sent revivals to America in the past. The Great Awakening was a couple decades before the American Revolution. And it just swept through Boston, through all up and down the eastern seaboard. That's all there was at the time. Just swept all up and down the eastern seaboard. And thousands and thousands of people repented and came to faith in Christ. And it changed the heart of the nation as people became accountable to God again. That's what revival does. You know, we can have laws and we can have constitutional amendments barring you know, same-sex marriage. And all those things are important. But you know, those things are just like walls against the impending evil. But they can't change people's hearts. Only revival can change the heart of America and make us a different kind of people. Not just change the external laws, change the internal hearts. So the way I'd like to close is um, to pray about those things, to pray with you. If you look on the back of your sermon notes, here's a prayer I'd like us to pray together. There's another George Washington prayer. They found a book of... This is from his personal prayer book from this great deist. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till you read it. Uh, this is from George Washington's personal prayer book. It was actually found among his papers in 1891. And they sort of found this. And they said, oh, what's this? Oh, it's his personal prayer book. And written in his own hand. And these are the prayers that he would pray on a regular basis. He was uh, Anglican, so you know, he had sort of st standard prayers that he prayed. But uh, you you'll see that it's a wonderful prayer. And it's a prayer of confession of sin, and it's also a prayer for the nation. So there's a lot of these and thines in it, but I think you'll, you'll get through that and it's just a great little prayer. So if you don't mind, let's just bow our heads and read this prayer and make it our own. O most glorious God, in Jesus Christ, my merciful and loving Father, I acknowledge and confess my guilt in the weak and imperfect performance of my duties this day. I have called on Thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins. Let me live according to those holy rules which Thou hast this day prescribed in Thy holy word. Make me know what is acceptable in Thy sight and therein to delight. Open the eyes of my understanding 
and help me thoroughly to examine myself concerning my knowledge, faith, and repentance. Increase my faith and direct me to the true object, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Bless, O Lord, all the people of this land, from the highest to the lowest, particularly those whom thou hast appointed to rule over us in church and state. These weak petitions I humbly implore thee to hear. Accept an answer for the sake of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to sing a closing.